You're listening to the Birth Matters Podcast, episode 91. What I want to share most is that it's definitely possible to have a low intervention birth in a hospital, but it's important to recognize that it's not the default and you definitely need to choose your provider and your support team wisely and then also educate yourself so you're prepared to advocate for your own choices. You know, in your class, you talk about calling it birth preferences rather than a birth plan. Mm-hmm. Because the term plan sometimes puts people on edge. But yeah, I think if, if you are informed, then you're able to navigate whatever unexpected things might come up. Hey there, and welcome to the Birth Matters Show. I'm your host, Lisa Graves Taylor, founder of Birth Matters NYC Childbirth Education and Labor Support. This show is here to lessen your overwhelm on the journey into parenthood by equipping and encouraging you with current best evidence info and soulful interviews with parents and birth pros. Please keep in mind the information on this show is not intended as medical advice or to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Have you subscribed to the show yet? Please be sure to do that wherever you're listening to this or over at birthmattersshow.com so you don't miss out on anything. If you live in New York City or Western Long Island and are considering hiring a doula, I'm happy to offer you a couple of excellent options to find a great birth or postpartum doula. If you want to make highly efficient use of your time, we invite you to attend our collective's next free Meet the Doulas event. It's an interactive, speed dating style event that will allow you to meet several doulas all in one efficient sitting to see who you might connect with, and then you narrow it down and meet with one or more later for an extended complimentary interview after the event. We usually hold them monthly, so just visit eastriverdoulas.nyc and on the homepage there's a link to RSVP. Or if you prefer, you can visit eastriverdoulas.nyc anytime and fill out our quick inquiry form for one-on-one help with this. At the time this episode airs, our next Meet the Doulas event is coming up Saturday, September 17th at 5 p.m. on Zoom. Hope to see you there. Now for a bit about today's birth story. Kelly eagerly educated herself and prepared for giving birth in all the ways, prenatal yoga, hiring doulas and a midwife, taking birth class strategic nutrition, acupuncture, seeing a pelvic floor therapist. Because she's a self-professed, jaded professional working in the medical field, she made very intentional choices surrounding her care provider and support team. Kelly's surprised when, just before her due date, her water breaks during a prenatal visit with her midwife. From there, listen to hear how quickly Kelly's labor progresses after her midwife sends her home, how instinctively she labors, and how showing up just in time to push contributed to an easier-than-she-expected birthing process. Kelly also shares a bit about her early breastfeeding experience and how getting her daughter's tongue-tie oral restrictions released helped lead to gradual improvements. Before we hear from Kelly, I just want to mention that our fall group birth classes are filling up fast, so if you're due in the next few months, you'll want to grab your spot soon. Visit birthmattersnyc.com for group and private options, as well as my online anytime course. Also, remember that podcast listeners get a $30 discount on the Birth Matters Complete online course. So when you're checking out to purchase it, just enter the promo code POD30OFF to get the podcast discount. Now let's hear from Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the Birth Matters podcast. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. Kelly took my birth class back in July, I think. So welcome. Would you please just take a few moments to introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Kelly. I'm married to my husband, Phil. We live in Bayside in Queens, and we have a fur baby named Lola and our daughter, Nora, who is just about 12 weeks old. Aside from being a new mom, still in leave for a few more months, I'm happy to say, but I'm also a speech pathologist and I work in a hospital setting, mostly with geriatrics. Babies are a whole nother world for me. (laughs) (laughs) The other end of the spectrum. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And are you back to working yet? Are you still in the No, I'm very lucky that I was able to take a six month leave from work. So I won't be going back until the spring. Oh, good. I know. I feel feel so lucky. Minimum we should get. Absolutely. absolutely. That's so great. Wonderful. So why don't we start with your pregnancy journey and the different ways you prepared for the journey into parenthood, um, how your pregnancy went, just anything to note. 
Yeah, sure. I've always been really interested in birds. So I had done a lot of independent reading and learning through social media, podcasts, um, including yours, etc. So I had a lot of knowledge and ideas about physiologic birth and my goals for my own birth experience even before I became pregnant. For example, I knew I wanted to hire a doula. I knew I wanted to minimize interventions, hopefully avoid an epidural. And I personally would have considered a home birth, but it was not something my husband was comfortable with at all. So we agreed to aim for a natural low intervention birth with a hospital delivery. And with that in mind, I knew it was going to be really important, first of all, to find a provider who was going to be supportive of my plans. And when I first found out I was pregnant, I spent a lot of time researching local providers and figuring out which hospital I wanted to deliver at. I really wanted to work with a midwife, but where we live in Eastern Queens, I had very few options for midwives that had hospital privileges. So I finally settled on an OB practice that was close by that had a midwife. She attended all of her own deliveries. And I was really pleased after our first appointment. She was great. But I found out a few weeks later that she left the practice for unspecified reasons. So after that, they just transferred my care to a physician assistant. And she provided prenatal care, but she didn't attend deliveries. So she told me, oh, well, you can schedule an appointment with one or more of the attending OBs if you want to. And like most uh, private practices, there will be rotate coverage for deliveries. So there was really no way to predict which doctor was going to be delivering my baby. But another thing I found really strange was that I went to a number of visits and I was never actually examined by a provider. So they would do an ultrasound at every visit. They drew my blood or took urine samples. And then I would just briefly meet with the PA in her office. But no one ever like actually examined me, which I thought was really weird. So I really wasn't comfortable there continuing, but I also was just feeling so disappointed and overwhelmed at the idea of going back to the drawing board in terms of choosing a provider. So I kept going to appointments there for a while. I tried to figure out what to do. And I actually was listening to your podcast and I heard one of your guests talk about her midwife on Long Island who delivered at the same hospital I had chosen. But I immediately looked her up and I wound up switching my care to her practice at 20 weeks. I don't think I knew that. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel so lucky that I heard about her because truly my my internet searches had not really yielded much. It's hard. It's really it hard. is really hard. Yeah. So at our first meeting, I really liked her whole approach and her personality. She said, most of my patients are seeking low intervention births. Very supportive. Exactly. Like, these are all the things that I do standard. You can let me know if you want to do anything different. And it was pretty much everything that I had in mind. She also confirmed she attends all of her own deliveries. So pretty much guaranteed she was going to be the one of my birth. And I also liked my prenatal care much better. She did an exam every visit. She took time to answer my questions. She really didn't use ultrasound. She used the Doppler instead. So I think I only had one additional ultrasound between 20 weeks and when I delivered. That's really standard with a lot of midwives. Yeah. Um, especially ones in birthing centers and home births, but in some hospitals, they'll also do far fewer internal checks and yeah. monograms and things, which, cause we don't really need to do all that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was a really good move. But aside from working with the midwife, I also had a dual team that I totally adored. I think because I work in healthcare and especially in a hospital setting, I'm a little jaded for better or worse. Yeah. And I knew I was going to need to be prepared and a little strategic in order to have the birth I wanted in a hospital. But my husband is just very inclined to trust doctors and go along with whatever they recommend, which is fine. But I knew I was going to need a doula in my corner to help navigate if things got a little complicated and needed to make decisions. So before we bought our house in Bayside and we moved in March, 2020, right at the start of the pandemic. We had lived in Astoria for four years. So I had heard about the Astoria Doula Collective and it was very much on my radar. And I attended one of the virtual Meet the Doulas events. And I was so lucky to connect with Beth and Sarah Grace at that event because after talking to them for a few minutes, I could tell they were exactly the kind of energy I was looking for. Very calm, confident, supportive of whatever my goals were, but also pretty savvy to the ways that hospitals can sometimes disrupt the natural birth process. And they had a lot of tips for how to preempt some of those challenges. Mm -hmm. Great. The other thing that was great was Sarah Grace was offering weekly prenatal yoga sessions. And we hired them when I was about five months pregnant. So I really got to take advantage of those yoga classes all through the second half of my pregnancy, which was awesome. 
And that's part of their package, as I understand it. Yeah, she recently switched to doing the classes once a month and also offering it up to previous clients for kind of a postnatal yoga as well. So I'm really excited. I'm doing the first one next weekend. Oh, wonderful. So once we had our team kind of assembled, we also did your birth talks. I, like I said, had done a lot of research. So there was a lot of stuff in the class that I was already familiar with. But my husband had very little prior exposure to pregnancy, birth, infant care. Was all new to him. So I knew something interactive was going to be helpful for us. Kind of got on the same page. So we took the live class over Zoom when I was about six months pregnant. We decided to do it a little earlier to give us more time to digest, which I thought was a good move. And I think what I learned about your class is just such a balanced perspective about all the different interventions you might encounter, just so you can make informed decisions, not really pushing that you should do one thing or another. But here's all the information so that you feel prepared should you be called upon to make choices about these things. And I also liked that we were able just to practice different coping techniques together, even though, funny enough, we didn't actually use all that many of them. But it was a nice experience to be able to practice different supportive positions and stuff together. Sure. And you never know. It might have played out in a different way. Yeah. yeah. Maybe even for a future first, maybe you'll use some of those things. Definitely. Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. And one thing I wanted to ask you is given you said, Phil, as many do in our culture, tends to think doctor knows best. Let's trust that. Coming to my class, I know that I kind of rock that boat a little bit or a lot. (laughs) Um, Of When you look at the data and see that we have some of the worst outcomes for birthing people of all of the developed nations, that means that we have some work to do and that that self-advocacy piece comes in really handy and helping our care provider to abide by best evidence and or just really hiring a, a, someone who is abiding by best current evidence and will yeah. provide patient-centered care. Anyway, I'm digressing a bit, but my no. question is just like, how did that land with him? Was he like, who, who does she think she is? Or... <laughs> no, not at all. I think it was things that I had already been saying to him. So it was just an opportunity to continue the discussion and him to understand where I was coming from about some mm. of the things I felt really strongly about. So it was good. Oh, good. So as far as my pregnancy goes, I was very fortunate that I had a pretty easy, comfortable pregnancy. And overall, I actually really enjoyed being pregnant. First trimester was rough. I was so tired. I fell asleep at my desk a few times. I think my coworkers were like, what's wrong with her? I'm pretty sure they knew something was up. Uh, And I was pretty nauseous. I ate a lot of plain chicken fingers, would come home from the city commuting and fall asleep at 5.30. But by about 12 weeks, that let up. And then after that, it was pretty smooth. Did I ask you something real quick about the chicken? I just noticed the the chicken (laughs) fingers and so many people are like crackers. Had you, in all of your reading, because I know you read up and and really were very prepared much earlier than many people are, had you read the need for protein? Yeah. A lot of protein. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm a pretty balanced eater in general. So I had this sense that I needed something with sustenance, but it needed to be very plain and and nothing with any intense flavors. So Mm -hmm. that was my go-to. Yeah. And a lot of people aren't aware how much protein our bodies need when we're building a baby. So I just want to just ask about that since I know yeah. you said chicken. <laughs> I also learned through trial and error that if I let myself get hungry, the nausea would get much worse. So I made a point of eating kind of every three hours just to make sure that I had something in my stomach Great. and that worked well. Mm-hmm. I also actually did take B12 and Unisam. And that I do think made a big difference. I actually continued taking it for my whole pregnancy because at one point I stopped taking it thinking like, oh, maybe I don't need this anymore. And I started to feel a little queasy. So I just stuck with it. Yeah, that's good. We found out pretty early on we were having a girl, but it wasn't really important to us to keep that a secret. So we did share that, but we decided to keep her name to ourselves until she was born. That was a nice little surprise for our families. In terms of preparing physically for birth, knowing that I wanted kind of minimal pain management. I had a few sessions with a pelvic floor physical therapist kind of as a proactive measure, just to check things out and learn a little bit about what I could do uh, proactively and then also afterwards. So that was great. I learned some exercises for strengthening, but also relaxing. That was something I learned that it's not always about strengthening your pelvic floor. It's also about learning to relax those muscles. And then, like I said, I was also doing prenatal yoga about once a week. And I was commuting to Manhattan this whole time. So my commute involved two to three miles of walking round trip. Uh, I take the Long Island Railroad from where I live. And that helped keep me moving even when I was otherwise slowing down and not really motivated to exercise. At least I was getting 
lots of walking time in, which I think definitely helped. And then around 37 weeks, I started going for acupuncture once a week at my doula's recommendation, and I loved it. Wouldn't have been something I considered otherwise, but I found it so relaxing. I think all of the things added up to prepare my body for birth, but there was definitely an element of luck for me. The baby was head down. She was in the left occiput anterior position for weeks, pretty low in my pelvis for most of the end of pregnancy. So she was ready to go. We didn't have to do too much extra work to get her in positions. Before you move on, I just wanted to ask if you remember right now and would like to share, or you can share it with me after the fact for the show notes page, your pelvic floor PT and the acupuncturist. Do you happen to remember yeah. you saw? I'll have to look up the name of the practice for pelvic PT. I will say the provider I was seeing has since left that practice and I only met her in person once. So I can't say too much about her. Okay, then it doesn't make sense to list them. But for acupuncture, it was a referral from my jewel. Again, I'll, I'll look up the name, but she was awesome. Would highly recommend her and she's in Manhattan. Okay, great. Thank you. Sure. So I think I'll jump into the birth story. Go right ahead, yeah. All right. I was commuting to Manhattan. I've been planning to work up until a few days before my due date. But those last few weeks, it wasn't working. That was the problem. It was the commute. It just started to feel like too much. So thankfully, my department's super flexible and they let me move my last day up by a week. And my husband actually had also taken that week off. So we were able to spend a lot of time together. We went on dates. We've got the house ready. And I think that really helped me mentally prepare, kind of unwind in preparation for the baby arriving. So that was really awesome. You can't always plan it, but I would definitely recommend doing that if you can. So when I was 39 weeks and six days, I had an appointment at my midwife's office and I was going for weekly appointments at this point, but I had not had any signs of labor yet. And I had also declined cervical checks pretty much throughout my pregnancy. I think I only had one the entire time. Since I was just about full term, the midwife wanted to do a check at this visit, which I agreed to. And she also did a non-stress test, which was totally normal. But while I was waiting for her to come in for the exam, I went to use the bathroom and all of a sudden I had this kind of continuing trickle of fluids. I realized my water had broken. So ironic that it happened right in the midwife's office. But this was around 11.30 in the morning and she didn't even bother testing the fluid. She was like, oh yeah, that's definitely your water. She checked me. She said I was two to three centimeters dilated and 100% of face and said, go home rest, but I'll probably see you at the hospital later tonight. And we had previously discussed the plan to call her when my contractions were 5-1-1, meaning five minutes apart, lasting at least one minute and consistent for at least an hour. So we had her uh, personal cell phone number. That's how she handles her patients. So I texted our doulas to let them know things were happening. And they gave me some additional suggestions for alternating movement and rest to try and get contractions going and keep them going steadily in the right direction. And we left the office, stopped for lunch on the way home. Do you happen to remember any of the suggestions that the doulas gave you? Yeah. The mile circuit, taking walks. They said like 30 minutes. Once contractions start, aim for 30 minutes of movement and 30 minutes of rest. You want to conserve your energy, but keep your body moving. Great. Thanks. Yeah. So we left the office. We stopped for lunch on the way home. Knew that was going to be a priority was to get some good sustenance in me before labor started. And even within the hour sitting there eating lunch, I started to notice some contractions and they started getting stronger pretty quickly. So by the time we got home around one o'clock, I was really uncomfortable, like made a beeline from the car to the house and set up on the living room floor with my birth ball. Uh, it was already at the point that I couldn't really do anything else. I could still talk in between contractions, but I definitely was not watching a movie or doing the puzzle that we thought we were going to be doing in early labor, all these things that we planned. So I was draped over the birth ball on my knees. I was just breathing, kind of rocking side to side through the contractions. And then at around two o'clock, I texted the doulas again that things had really progressed. The contractions were between three and five minutes apart and lasting anywhere from 90 seconds to two minutes. And shortly after that, I stopped really being able to kind of text or hold the conversations. My husband took over and he was texting with Sarah Grace, who we knew was going to be the one attending my birth. And I was feeling like I needed to just change up my position and do something different. And I was already in my head and didn't have the wherewithal to think through what my position options were. So she gave us some good suggestions. And I really had no sense of time from this point on because I was just fully focused inward on breathing. I started vocalizing, which I found really helpful to get through the peaks of the contractions. And because this was my first time in labor and because things went so much more quickly 
than I had expected based on everything I had learned about first-time laborers. I really had no sense of where I was in terms of stages of labor either. So things felt really intense really quickly. Part of my brain was a little panicky thinking, if this is early labor, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Yeah, those mind games. Yeah. Real, aren't they? Definitely. But at the same time, there was this very calm inner voice that was like, you know what? This is happening. Your body's doing the work. All you have to do is just surrender and let your body do its thing. And that was really my intention for labor all along. That was my motivation for not wanting interventions. I really wanted my body to lead the way. But it's funny, it's kind of a reflection of my personality. I think that I'm a very type A person. So I had done all of this preparation and research so that I could feel in control and have tools to manage my labor. And really all I needed to do was just let go and let it happen. But maybe that prep really helped you to let go and let it happen. I think so too. Yeah, I have no regrets about all of the preparation I did. I think that it all added up to having the experience that I wanted. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit, if you don't mind, on the vocalization piece? What was that like as part of the vocalization? Was it just like primitive groaning? Was it counting? Was it saying something like an affirmation or a word, anything? Yeah, it was just that primitive moaning sound. I was consciously thinking about keeping it very low and relaxed because I knew that was going to help my body stay relaxed. Mm -hmm. And it was funny how once I remembered to start doing it, because I had been breathing, that was something that seemed very natural. I was like, oh, people always say that like moaning can really help them. And I was amazed at how effective it was. And it feels a little weird and embarrassing, even though you're caught up in labor, you're like, oh, I'm making all these weird sounds. But mm-hmm. truly, it was so helpful. And as soon as I started doing it, I was like, oh, that, let's keep doing that. That's good. Great. I'm glad that helped. <laughs> so that continued all the way through. But around two, I texted the doula. They gave me some ideas for other positions. So I moved first to sideline in bed with one knee all the way up. That worked for a little while. And then I moved to the shower on my hands and knees, which I remember when I first got in felt amazing. But the relief didn't last that long. One thing that was really challenging was I didn't feel like I was getting a break between contractions. So there were waves or peaks, but then in between, I was still feeling pretty strong pain. And when I first got in the shower, I had total relief between contractions and it felt so good, but it really didn't last that long, unfortunately. At some point, being on my hands and knees started to feel too intense. And I flipped over. I was sitting in a kind of reclined position. And I really think instinctually my body was trying to slow things down a little bit because it was moving so fast because I stayed in that position uh, until we left for the hospital. So this whole time, like I said, I was really in my own head. I wasn't looking for hands-on support. I felt like I was coping pretty well with what I was doing, but I felt nauseous the whole time. I wanted my husband near me and I just kept telling him to bring the trash can every time I moved just in case I needed to throw up. (laughs) So he stayed with me and he was in touch with Sarah Grace some of their text messages looking back helped me figure out the timeline of things. So at three o'clock, my contractions were two minutes apart, lasting about 90 seconds each. And Sarah Grace talked to me on the phone briefly and she could tell I sounded different. So she said, I'm going to pack up and head to you. But she was coming from Brooklyn and we're pretty far east in Queens. So she was at least an hour away. And then he called the midwife around this time too. And she definitely said, come to the hospital now. But I was really in denial about how fast things were progressing. And I felt so strongly about staying out of the hospital for as long as possible that I insisted that we wait for Sarah Grace to get there because I was really afraid that we were going to get to the hospital. I was going to find out I still had so long to go and it was just Mm going to be like a really tough blow. Mm -hmm. So we had our bags packed. We were prepared. There's some of those last minute things. You're like, oh, I'll get them together when labor starts. So he's frantically trying to run around and get those things. And I'm like, just come back. I just need you to sit here and be next to me. So there were things that just never made it back, but we we made it. And then at 4.30 is when Sarah Grace arrived and she pretty much helped me get dressed and then turned right around and headed to the car to go to the hospital. Unfortunately, we were heading out on a Friday afternoon into rush hour traffic. So yeah, it would normally be a 15 minute drive any other time, but it was more like 35 minutes. Phil was very calm, took all the side roads and I was sitting in the back seat. And I know everyone says the car ride in labor is the absolute worst, but I honestly didn't think it was any worse than anything else. Again, because I was sitting in this semi-reclined position, I think my body was just like, let's slow it down a little. So I was able to stay in that position in the car, kept my eyes closed, kept moaning through contractions, and it was fine. And then we pulled up to the hospital entrance at 5.05, and I looked out the window, and I was like, how am I going to get up and walk inside? It felt so impossible. 
But then I was like, okay, I guess we're doing this. And I did it. It's a pretty short walk. I had one contraction on the way, just kind of leaned against the wall and waited it out. And then, of course, the security was like, do you want a wheelchair? But I wanted to just walk. So we walked all the way up. Um, Sarah Grace came in with me and Phil went to park the car. So when you get to the entrance of Labrie, I don't think I mentioned this is NYU Long Island Hospital, which used to be Winthrop. When you get to the entrance outside of the actual doors that lead you in, there's a receptionist who just does registration paperwork. And there was a couple ahead of me who are clearly not in active labor. And I was just standing there making so much noise. But for some reason, the receptionist was not really moving with any urgency. So I was just trying to wait my turn. And then my midwife came out and she was like, there you are. I've been waiting for you because she had gotten a phone call two hours earlier that my contractions were two minutes apart. So I think she was a little nervous. But like, you need to cut the line. Yeah, let's go. (laughs) So she told the receptionist that I was going to skip triage and be admitted directly to L&D. I had to wait another minute or two. She brought us, the firms are all electronics. You just scroll through. Thank goodness Sarah Grace is there. She's swiped through and said, sign here. And I have actually like a record of the time. It was only 10 minutes that we were waiting there, but it felt like forever. Like who paperwork shoved in your face? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So about 5.15, I walked back to the delivery room and the nurse was just going about her usual process for prepping for an admission. And I think because I was so calm, she didn't realize quite how progressed I actually was. And of course I didn't know. So I told her I felt like I needed to pee. And she said, oh, great, I need a urine sample. So she gives me the cup and I sit on the toilet for a minute. I'm only getting a trickle. Phil came in briefly. And when he saw me just sitting there, he was like, oh, I have time. And he went back out to the car to go get some stuff that he hadn't brought in. But when I went to stand up, that's when I had the bloody show. Everybody had been asking me, do you have any blood this whole time? And I had not. And then suddenly I did. So the midwife came in and she was like, all right, time to go. She hustled me onto the bed, checked me, said I was 10 centimeters. And when she checked me, the rest of my waters came gushing out. This whole time it had just been like a little bit of a trickle. Mm -hmm. And so it was a big gush. So I was laying on my side on the bed with my knees bent. And almost immediately after that, release of the waters, I started bearing down completely involuntarily. It was such a crazy feeling. It felt like my body was wringing itself out from the middle down and up. So I thought for sure I was going to throw up. They gave me like a little bag, but I never did. It just felt just so intense. That's Uh, one of the most specific physical descriptions I have ever heard. Thank you for that. It's always nice to when when someone articulates more specifically what that was like. That was really helpful. Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah, definitely never going to forget that feeling. (laughs) Um, That happened two more times. I think it coincided with contractions. There were short breaks in between those bearing down episodes, but I don't know how long they were. I think they were only like a minute or two. And of course, now there's lots of people in the room. The nurses, there's a midwife, there's a resident physician. Everybody's talking and like running around. Phil made it back in time. He was sitting next to me, holding my hand, yeah. And then I'm sure Sarah Grace like texted him in a panic. Sarah Grace was standing next to my head and just like talking to me very softly. And even though it wasn't interfering with my labor, obviously at this point, but it was such a vibe shift to come into the hospital and there's bright lights and people running around. So I actually had the weird phone between pushes to say, hey, can we turn the lights off? So bright in here, which they did. And then they had the purple mood lighting on the wall. So that was nice. And I was taking steps of full moon lighting. Yeah, I think it's the NYU colors. Right, yep. Uh, <laughs> I also was taking steps of water from my hydro flask in between pushes. Yay, the hydro flask. Yay! After the, the third kind of involuntary push, then my body relaxed a little bit and I was able to more actively push. So the midwife coached me to try to hold out the push a little bit longer during the next two contractions. And that was it. That was all it took. She was born at 554, five pushes total. And you gave birth on your side? Is that? Yes. Yes. That was the position I wound up in getting on the bed and it was working. So I was like, I don't think I had the energy at that point to change it, but it was perfectly fine. And I remember the midwife saying to the, the resident, these residents always try, they're so shocked that women can deliver with their knees together. That's that's such a revelation to them. But she's, of course, that's a very natural position to be in. So you're saying you rotated your knees inward? 
Pretty much. Yeah. yeah which is what public yeah. therapists, um, for anyone who isn't familiar with that, because that's not what we see in movies, mm-hmm. we see legs splayed open right. and pelvic floor therapists will tell us that actually closes the outlet, the bottom of the pelvis. Exactly. Uh, ironically. So yay that you did that. That's great. Yeah. And yeah. Yay, yay for helping some of the medical staff around you who aren't used to seeing exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Oh, yeah. The kind of ring of fire. I felt slight burning sensation, but it really wasn't anything too notable. But afterwards, it was just such an immense sense of relief, mostly that it was done, but also just that it wasn't going to get more intense than it had been, because I think that was my fear the whole time. So I was so worried that after it was over, I actually said out loud, is it weird that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be? So everyone obviously thought that was hilarious. So I delivered the placenta shortly after. That was totally fine. We did delete cord clamping a few minutes. I would have loved for it to have been longer, but the cord was not super long. Nora was really on my belly. She couldn't make it up to my chest. And the midwife was like, can we just cut it so you can have her on your chest? So Phil cut the cord. And at some point when I had first arrived, the nurse put in a heplock, which I knew about and had agreed to. And they did give me Pitocin and a bag of IV fluids after delivery, which I think is really standard for them. Honestly, if they had asked me, I probably would have said no thanks, but it was too quick for me to say anything. I didn't even realize until later, especially about the fluids. I knew about the Pitocin, but not about the fluids. Yeah. We had about an hour of skin to skin. Then they took her just across the room for a few minutes just to weigh her and measure her. And because I came in so quickly, we did a lot of administrative stuff after the delivery. I signed a bunch of consent forms for the delivery I already had. And I, had to be, do. I know, it's so silly. <laughs> I had to be tested for COVID, which they did again after she was born. Then I had to wait for the results to come back before I went up to the postpartum unit. So we actually stayed in the delivery room for a few hours waiting for the test results. In the meantime, I was able to get out of bed right away. I was able to use the bathroom and everything was fine. So as soon as the test results came back, I was good to go. And I did try to get her to latch a few times while we were there, but she was really sleepy. So she would only stay on for a few seconds at a time. But the rest of our hospital stay was very uneventful. We were able to get a private room, which was very nice. Phil stayed with me. And we opted to be discharged after 24 hours. So by the following evening, we were out. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about when you were talking about the brief ring of fire that you felt? When you went to see a pelvic PT, did they give you any customized exercises to do? And did they recommend perineal massage prenatally? Or what did that look like, if you don't mind? Yeah. The exercises were about coordinating breathing with uh, pelvic floor kind of tension and relaxation. Mm -hmm. We talked about perineal massage, but I never actually followed through with getting instructed in how to do it. So I did not do it at all. But I thankfully did not have any tears from this delivery. Hopefully that'll be true for the next one too. It's more likely if you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, with any of this, but (laughs) but that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's definitely apparent postpartum that I have some pelvic floor weakness, definitely had a little bit of incontinence in the first couple of days that got better. still feel some pressure, especially when baby wearing and stuff like that. So I'm glad that I learned about the exercises because now I know exactly what to do to try and tone that up and get back to where I was. Great. Thank you. So continue on from going home and maybe if you'd like to talk about your initial postpartum and, and breastfeeding, I know you wanted to talk about. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so I had been planning to breastfeed, but because we were in the hospital for such a short time, I didn't see a lactation consultant at all. And I had a couple of nurses try to help me, but Nora was very sleepy for that whole, which I think is normal, that whole first night and day. So she would only nurse her a few minutes at a time. But I did notice right away that I was having a lot of nipple pain when she was latching, which was the first red flag that maybe something was off. So once I was home, that pain continued and I decided to do a virtual consultation with a lactation consultant using the Nest Collaborative. And it was a really great experience. I would definitely recommend them. I was able to get an appointment within a day or two. The consultant was excellent. She was really knowledgeable. And right away, she identified multiple red flags for a tongue tie, which was causing her to have a really shallow latch and kind of just chomp on my nipple, <laughs> which is what was causing that pain. So she walked us through all the ways that we could troubleshoot in the meantime, but also really encouraged us to seek out an evaluation and consider getting the tongue tie released. And luckily, we were still 
able to continue exclusively breastfeeding through this whole period. I was experiencing a decent amount of pain, which was a bummer, but she was getting enough milk that we didn't need to pump and bottle feed or supplement, which I feel very lucky for because I think that really motivated me to persevere through some of the challenges we were having. I just felt really overwhelmed trying to sort through all of the information out there about tongue tie, which is why I thought it'd be good to bring it up because there's so much conflicting information about when to do a release, whether to do a release, what other kinds of evaluation or pre and post therapy you should get. And it can leave you just feeling so overwhelmed and unsure of what to do. Mm -hmm. So I spoke with a speech pathologist colleague who works in pediatric feeding. She did a quick assessment and she also encouraged me to just go ahead with the release and then gave me some tips of things that I could do after to try and strengthen her tongue. So when Nora was four weeks old, we took her to a pediatric dentist who specializes in tongue ties. He confirmed she had a posterior tongue tie as well as an upper lip tie, and he released them both with a laser. He's out east on Long Island and is purported to be the best Scott Eagle. Yeah. 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 Like, he was recommended by my doulas as well. Like he's the one to go to. So he was great. It was a good experience and everything healed well, which is good. We did have to do stretches of the wounds where you're actually stretching wound open to help it heal the way we want it to five times a day for two weeks, which was really torture for all of us, but we made it through. She would get so upset, but I just knew we needed to get through it and it would be silly to have done the procedure and then not have it heal the right way. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for describing I don't think anyone has ever shared that on the podcast before. I think the topic has come up, but that's good for people to know just in advance that it, it is necessary to help things heal properly and as we need them to, but that's not yeah, fun. <laughs> it's not. And I think if you're going to do it, you have to be mentally prepared to just push mm-hmm. that feeling of, I don't think actually that it was that painful for her because once we did the stretch, she would calm down immediately. I think it was more the discomfort of having fingers shoved in her mouth was very jarring, but it was okay. So after the procedure, while things were healing and then even beyond the two-week mark, the improvement in her breastfeeding and her latch was slow and steady. It wasn't a magic bullet, like suddenly everything is fine. And I continued seeing a lactation consultant for a couple of additional sessions because she had learned to latch in a certain way because of the way her tongue was. And now that it was different, she needed to relearn how to do that. So there was some hands-on assistance for me to help her kind of relearn how to use her tongue in a new way. And then we also did a few sessions with a chiropractor. That's something a lot of people recommend, some kind of body work after the procedure Mm -hmm. uh, to alleviate any residual tension in her body. But after a few weeks, things were definitely much better. And now I feel like we're really doing great. Still got some hiccups to work through, but compared to where we were to now, I'm really glad that we persevered through those challenges and we were able to continue breastfeeding. That's great. And the chiropractor, what were those visits? My understanding is that usually pediatric chiropractors who specialize in working with babies, it's going to be a very gentle technique. Was that your experience? Yeah. It doesn't really look like much. They're putting like maybe one finger worth of pressure, maybe around the hips or along the spine. He did assess her having her suck on a finger each time and check her neck to make sure things were symmetrical. But yeah, a visit was really only five to 10 minutes. It was pretty quick. A chiropractor or a cranial sacral therapist, as I understand it, would be working with the fascia. Mm-hmm. It's, it's connective layer that it's everything is connected. Right. And some people, when a baby gets a tongue tie or lip tie diagnosis, have found that going for maybe a few sessions, maybe two to four sessions with a cranial sacral therapist or a chiropractor before even having the oral adjustment done, Mm-hmm. sometimes makes it not even necessary. That's not going to be the case all of the time, but it's some. Yeah. It's one possible course of action that someone could consider if they wanted to. Yeah. And I love that you did Definitely. that care um, afterwards. But the rest of postpartum, I think, was uneventful. It's good and it's hard in all the normal ways, I think. I definitely was not someone who felt an instant connection when my baby was born. That's something that has built over time for me. And I was very lucky to have Phil home with me for the first six weeks. And he was such a great emotional support more than anything. He's very hands-on, but whenever I was feeling overwhelmed, he could talk me down and be like, well, this is just temporary. Things will get better. Because things change so quickly in those early weeks and it's really hard when something new and kind of difficult starts happening 
to not feel totally overwhelmed. But definitely what I learned on the best advice I have is that nothing lasts forever. It feels like it's going to last forever. And then in a few days, it's over and you're on to the next thing. So if you're going through something hard, just know, keep going and it will pass. Yeah, that's one of the things that my husband always said was one of the most valuable things to remind himself on. But I, I agree. Yeah. I, I did this too. Just this is temporary. This is and then you're like, oh, as soon as you figure something out with the baby that you were like a challenge, then they grow it. They like keep you that's on your you toes. The hang of it. Right, yeah, exactly. Then they're like, okay, true. there's a new challenge. There's a growth spurt. There's a this or that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's all worth it. It's all temporary. And uh, yeah, we can cherish it when we can and then remind ourselves it's not forever when we need to. <laughs> yeah. And I think also the first six weeks are especially hard because the baby's not giving you much. They're not super interactive. They're not yes. smiling yet. Mm-hmm. So you feel like you're giving everything to caring for this tiny person who's so vulnerable and then you're oh, not really? getting much in return. But if you power through it, then suddenly when they start smiling, it's so amazing. Yes. I just got chills thinking about it when you yeah, yeah. like shift into that phase. Really fun. Wonderful. Oh, actually, I wanted to ask you when Phil returned to work around six weeks, was that a smooth transition or did you feel lonely, isolated, any challenging stuff around that time? Yeah, I have my extra support. It's mostly me. We have family local, which is awesome, but they all work also. So during the week, it's just me. And that has definitely been an adjustment. It's something I anticipated would be hard for me. So I did mentally prepare for that. And we talked a little before we started recording about baby wearing, which has definitely been a game changer for me because I'm someone who doesn't really like to be idle for long stretches of the day or feel like I'm trapped in the house. And Nora does not love napping anywhere except on me. So, you know, rather than try and force her to nap in the crib or the bassinet, we said, all right, let's take this nap on the go. And so I can clean the house, take the dog for a walk. I zip her up inside my big coat. And so that has just been so awesome for me. And as we're recording this, I know listeners can't see, but we're on a Zoom <laughs> call. And it, as soon as she turned her video on, I said, Kelly, baby wearing. I'm so excited. You have yeah. the baby on you. And she's been yeah. swaying throughout the time that she's been sharing yeah. all, of, all of the birth story details. <laughs> and there's so many carriers now that you can use right from kind of day one. I used the soft Mm. wrap in the first weeks Mm -hmm. and now I'm using more of a soft structured carrier. But yeah, definitely if you can learn a little bit about how to use a carrier and get one before the baby comes, then you'll be ready to kind of jump in and not Mm. get overwhelmed by it. Absolutely. And in the show notes, I will post a link. The baby wearing guru in our doula collective, Adrian Stair, just recently created the most awesome tip sheet on some of the top benefits of baby wearing. And for anyone who is interested in just taking a peek at that, I will link that in the show notes with her permission. And that's a nice starting place. Not everybody, it's not, it kind of rocks the cultural paradigm of babies in cribs. And then we're so surprised that our babies only want to sleep on us, but that's actually so biologically normal. And having a baby wearing your baby frees up your arms and your hands, as you have found, and Mm -hmm. you're snuggling and it's calming you and your baby. There's just so many wonderful Absolutely. So yay for that. Thanks for sharing that. Awesome. Is there anything else that you didn't get to share yet that you'd like to share or any final insights or advice? Sure. First, I just want to say thank you again for giving me the opportunity to share my birth story because I love listening to birth stories, did before I was pregnant and still do. But also because I remember in the hospital, one of my nurses heard how fast my labor was and then I had no tears and she said, people are going to hate you. And of course she said it in a joking way, but I did really have this apprehension about talking about my quote unquote easy birth when so many people have had difficult or traumatic experiences. But I do think it's important to hear positive stories of all kinds, which is why I loved and still love listening to podcasts like yours. So I would say what I want to share most is that it's definitely possible to have a low intervention birth in a hospital, but it's important to recognize that it's not the default and you definitely need to choose your provider and your support team wisely and then also educate yourself so you're prepared to advocate for your own choices. You know, in your class, you talk about calling it birth preferences rather than a birth plan. Because the term plan sometimes puts people on edge. But yeah, I think if if you are informed, then you're able to navigate whatever unexpected things might come up. Well said. I love it. Thank you so much. (laughs) Of course. 
Thank you again. I hope we can stay in touch and I hope that we can finally meet in person sometime. That would be really fun. All right. Have a good one. Keep in touch. Thank you. Bye, Kelly. Bye. Today, in these last few minutes that we have together, I'll briefly talk about left occiput anterior position, the mile circuit, helping the pelvis open in strategic ways during labor, and tongue tie. For anyone who might not be familiar with the term left occiput anterior position, this is referring to what's thought to be the most optimal position for a baby to start the birthing process in. Let me break it down and describe it for you as best as I can without showing you a visual. Left refers to the birthing person's left hip. Occiput is the back of the baby's head. Anterior means the back of the head is facing outward toward the pregnant person's belly and rotated over near the left hip. Babies can be in all kinds of positions, which you can read more about and see visuals over at spinningbabies.com. But this is the nuanced position we're hoping a baby will be in at the time we go into labor. This also includes, very importantly, baby being head down, also known as vertex. In the left occiput anterior position, most often the baby will rotate across the belly throughout labor as they rotate and descend, and this position usually means it's the easiest angle to fit through the pelvic bowl. This position tends to lead to shorter, more manageable labors because of the optimal fit, as well as the fact that the baby's head is pushing on the cervix in the most efficient position. Of course, as I always say, my disclaimer, huge range of normal, but these are the general tendencies that we see. The mile circuit has been mentioned in past podcast birth story episodes, including episode 45. It's a technique that can really help to get labor going or to help with progress if labor is going more slowly than we'd like. It helps by moving the body in specific ways that can help baby get in a more optimal position and or encourage descent and rotation of the baby. It also can help reduce back pain that's common in labor. It includes cycling through three positions. The first position is called open knee chest position, and it's a position in which the person is face down on a pillow but kneeling so that the butt is higher up than the head. The second position is exaggerated side-lying position, meaning the top leg is hiked up and propped up with a pillow or a peanut ball. Then the third move in the mile circuit is movement and lunges, specifically asymmetrical movements like putting a leg up on a chair at a 90-degree angle and lunging, going up the stairs sideways two steps at a time, or walking on a curb with one foot on the curb and one foot down off the curb. Each component is done for 30 minutes at a time, so the full circuit takes 90 minutes. We doulas often see it make a big difference for the better in our clients' labors. I'll link to visuals and instructions on this in the show notes for this episode, episode 91, over at birthmattersshow.com. Going back to when Kelly described pushing on her side and having her legs rotated inward instead of spread wide, I wanted to elaborate a little bit more on this because it's not commonly known. In the earlier parts of labor before pushing, usually a baby is higher in the pelvis in what we call the negative stations. And for those not familiar with the term station, this is referring to the position of the top of the baby's head in relation to the ischial spines or sit bones of the pelvis. In that part of labor, we want to open up the top of the pelvis, also called the pelvic inlet. Then once baby comes down lower into the plus stations, we then want to switch which part of the pelvis we are opening to the bottom of the pelvis, also known as the pelvic outlet. The position of our legs determines which part we're opening because the pelvis acts kind of like a clothespin so that when the top is open, the bottom is more closed and vice versa. Outward rotation of the femur or top of the leg and a wide stance will help open the top of the pelvis earlier in labor, whereas in the pushing stage once baby's in the plus stations, we want to open the pelvic outlet or the bottom of the pelvis by internally rotating the femur and having our legs more narrowly positioned. You can experience the difference in this by putting your fists under your sit bones when you're seated on a chair. First, spread your knees open with your toes pointing out like most of us would do in a wide squat. Feel where your sit bones are. 
Now slowly rotate your knees and your toes inward and feel with your fists how your sit bones spread outward, opening the bottom of the pelvis. Yet, this is not how most hospital staff are trained to coach us to position our legs in the pushing stage. This is somewhat newer information coming onto the radar of birth workers as we're learning lots from the expertise of pelvic floor PTs and OTs, so we're trying to spread the word. The topic of tongue tie also came up in the stories in episode 6 as well as episode 26, and I taught a bit on this topic in the endnotes too. Tongue tie falls under the category of something called tethered oral tissues, also known as TOTS. I'll link to those episodes in this episode's show notes, and I'll also link there to a few other resources where you can learn more about tethered oral tissues, how it's identified, how it's treated, and some other important considerations. Okay, here's a sneak peek of what's up next time. I feel really grateful because I feel like we had a great birth. And I think that can feel hard sometimes in, in talking about it with other people or with friends because I recognize so many people have it just really not go the way they had wanted it to through no fault of your own. It just unfolds in a natural way. And for you and your body and your baby, I do agree. And I've heard you say this and other people that you know choosing your care provider, someone who really has the same goals as you for the birth makes a huge difference. And I think that really did for us in both our provider and setting and having doulas. But I hope people can be encouraged that a good birth is possible, but also just know that, I mean, a good birth isn't in your control any more than one that felt difficult was in your control, really. But the parts that you are able to choose, like your care setting and your care provider, your doula, the people that you have in the room, those kinds of things are This week, I invite you to take a few unrushed minutes to put your hands on your belly, slow down and deepen your breath, and then mindfully turn your thoughts to your baby. Talk, sing, or hum to your baby. Pause. Connect. Sending you gratitude for tuning in today to the Birth Matters podcast. We'll see you next time.